All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everyone. It's Manoush, and this is Note to Self. There's a quick, very brief, minor curse word. I kind of say it more for emphasis, but um, I just wanted to give you a heads up. And I am going to start off this episode with a moment that actually got edited out of one of the conversations I taped for last week's series about how women live online. We called the series No Filter. Okay, so this moment was when I was wrapping up a pretty intimate conversation with Trace Lissette. Uh, She's on the show Transparent. We were talking about what it's like to be a trans actor in Hollywood not easy, and how she got to a place where she felt safe owning it. You just made me want to say, yes, queen, except that (laughs) I would sound like that when I would say it. So I didn't say it, but kind of It's all good. It's all good. You want to try again? (laughs) Yeah. Can you teach me, actually? (laughs) Okay, so I loved this moment. I mean, I know I sound like an old fart, but I thought that this interaction was, like, sweet and funny, But some of the younger producers on the show thought it was absolutely cringeworthy, maybe even offensive. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. (laughs) That wasn't so bad, right? That was better. Yeah, that was good. So what do you think? Was I appropriating a culture that I have no business appropriating and maybe even making Trace feel uncomfortable? Or was this just a silly exchange between two very different women who found an understanding of each other? I can see both sides, but I thought it was the latter. I meant it to be the latter. So I'm just going to own it. I'm just going to put it in your belly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my belly. Okay. Owning it was what our No Filter series was all about, exploring what it means to be a woman on the internet, in public, in a post-Me Too world, thinking hard about what we make sure everyone sees and what we edit out, and recognizing when maybe our message isn't quite right and being okay with that too, and learning from others about how we can do it better next time. Perfection? Impossible. Patience and acceptance? Absolutely. Today, we're going to wrap up this No Filter series and figure out what happens next. I got to say, I loved this series so damn much. And what I found was kind of a surprise to me. It was this joyous mix of vulnerable confessions, sometimes utter defiance, and for once, a mostly positive vision of what being a woman on the internet can look like. I want to just do a little roundup of my personal favorite no-filter moments. I hope I engage enough that people know who I am and where I come from, but 
I don't feel that I need to, you know, let it all hang out. I look forward to when we have someone in the White House who has, at some point or another, taken a nude photo of themselves and sent it to someone else, right? Like, because that's a normal thing that people do. Sometimes, like, getting likes is fun. It's like, this is great. I look cute today. I want to post a picture of myself. And then everybody's like, you look great. We love you. You look great. And you're like, yeah, I do. Thanks. You know. <laughs> Just the absolute naming of likes, of thumbs up and thumbs down, of friends, that is an externalization of our hopes and fears and desires and pleasures in such a palpable, literal way. They remember me when I had, a, before my nose job, and then after my nose job, when I told them I got a nose job. I got a boyfriend, I, I, I cut my hair, I didn't cut my hair, that sort of things. Like, that's why people like me, because they see an evolution, you know? That was CNN anchor Christian Amanpour, software engineer Erica Joy Baker, artists Amy Sherald and Barbara Kruger, and YouTube megastar Lele Pons. And you'll notice that there's a little something extra in your feed today, actually. It's a conversation that I had with Jasmine Lawson. She is the woman behind some of your favorite gifts. And uh, if you don't know what a gif is, you should also definitely listen. Enjoy it. If you missed any of these conversations, in fact, go back and listen, because what we have heard from you, dear listeners, is that they have sparked some internal investigations in how you live online yourselves. And we're going to play some of the voice memos that we got in just a minute. But first, I also want to mention that in preparation for doing this No Filter series, I spoke to some academic researchers about, yes, I know, I'm a nerd, but I wanted to know what they think, what they are proving, studying is happening with women online. As you can imagine, it is hard to generalize a subject that is this broad and varied. But there are a couple interesting data points that back up what many of us seem to have sensed is happening. The more that you speak about traditionally male subjects like economics, politics, technology, the more likely you are to get attacked. UNC professor Alice Marwick is the author of Status Update, Celebrity, Publicity, and Branding in the Social Media Age. I found that the more a woman sticks to typically feminine topics online, like fashion, beauty, homemaking, parenting, food, the less likely she is to be harassed. And there's reams of empirical evidence backing this up. I also talked to Cornell professor Brooke Aaron Duffy, who studies women and the social media economy. Her book is called Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work. I think a lot of the ways that women in particular are expected to be online, no matter what industry you're in, to present yourself as a brand, to be building and engaging with relationships, to be always on. These various skills that have been traditionally associated with femininity, I think, are becoming something that everyone is expected to do in the social media economy, where we're always encouraged to create, create, create content. Creating and creating and creating content. Many of you told me that you are trying to find the right balance between creating that feels productive and creating that feels like it is sucking you dry. We can't play you all the voice memos we got, but we do have a lovely selection, starting with Diana and Naomi, who scrutinize their online profiles 
and discovered a disconnect between the woman they are online and who they feel like they really are in real life. I realized that sometimes I'm a little scared that when people meet me in person, especially people I've mostly interacted with online, some of them for a decade, I've been on Facebook for a long time, whether or not they'll be disappointed in who they actually meet. I post like sometimes 10 to 12 times a day on my Facebook and a few times on my Instagram. And if there's something that wasn't seen a lot or didn't have a lot of likes, then I'll just delete it. But I am so worried about getting enough likes that I just let this version of me exist. But is just creating an amplified or better version of yourself online a bad thing necessarily? Rachel doesn't think so. When you see the person that you portray online, you know, do you like her? And I feel like the answer to that question for me is yes. It's nice to remind myself that I'm capable of that type of grace and composure on days when I'm not feeling very graceful or composed. So I don't I don't know who I don't know who that girl is in my Facebook feed, but she's cool and she gives me confidence sometimes when I need it. So that's who she is. And I like her. Some of our listeners have decided to make changes to how they live online. This is Betty. I decided to only post photos that I absolutely loved that I had taken with my 120 millimeter film camera. Does this photo make me happy? Does this photo touch me? Is this photo important to me as a person? Posting pictures that may matter only to you. That was a theme. Elena decided to start using Instagram to document her chronic illness. It was a part of me owning my disability. It was the first time I was admitting to myself I was a disabled person. And for some reason, Instagram seemed like the right place. And for that reason, I also made my profile public, which I've never done on Facebook, for example. So it was a big step in my own self-affirming, if you will. Self-affirmation, that is the good side of social media. But there are a lot of you out there who still feel a little conflicted, like Anastasia and Resham. I set up an Instagram account, but as soon as I posted one thing, I was so overwhelmed with anxiety that I, I, like, I, I had you know, just like a near meltdown of exposure because it seems to me that the only reason to post something is to get attention. And that feels like kind of a complicated goal. At the same time, I guess I want attention. What would I really talk about online if I didn't care what people thought? I do sometimes feel this pressure to be liked and be relatable that I wonder where that comes from, if that's a specific female tendency. Yeah, all of that. (laughs) How and why we choose to portray ourselves online is a complex issue, which is why, in a minute. I actually decided a long time ago that I was just going to do what I actually enjoyed doing and that any time it felt to me 
unpleasant or uncomfortable or that I was thinking about too much, I would just stop. The editor-in-chief of New York Magazine's The Cut, Stella Bugby, and I try to figure out where this conversation goes next. Hey, it's Manoush. It's Note to Self. And as you well know, the internet can be a roller coaster ride of connection and solidarity, but also doubt and rejection for everyone, but women especially. Balancing the wonderful with the trollful is a daily feat for many of us. Add in posing and performing on Instagram to get personal validation, and you can end up feeling pretty neurotic anytime you log on. So how do we reconcile the fact that social media acts as both a megaphone and a tool for objectification of women? So to talk further about how we do that, I want to close out this series again with Stella Bugby, editor-in-chief of The Cut, who also happens to be the mother of 13-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. So she's running a little social experiment in her own home every single day. And I also think it's worth acknowledging that The Cut was the first to publish Me Too allegations against New York Public Radio, the company that produces this show, Note to Self. Is it ironic that we partnered to do a series about women owning it online? Kind of. But I also think it's indicative of a new kind of consensus among women that supporting each other in these nuanced conversations takes precedence over competitive jockeying for eyeballs and ears. So here's Stella. I think that more people have been empowered to have voices, and so maybe we didn't hear from them as often as we should have in the past, and now we can. And I think they, the younger voices contributed in a really important part of the evolution of how we're going to see feminism and how we're going to approach aging and how we're going to deal with Me Too and, you know, the ways in which the world are going to change. These are going to be the people in power, you know, in not very long. I have a lot of conversations in which I feel like I'm whispering to the baby boomers and I'm whispering to the millennials and I'm trying to understand where everybody's coming from. I think we're in a fundamental shift and that ultimately— it's useless to fight against it. It's happening. It's changing. Yeah. The Cut just did a series called How to Raise a Boy. And in it, you talked about your experience raising your 13-year-old son. And really, like, what consistently has come up in this discussion about how women and girls represent themselves is this idea of changing idea of masculinity and what it means to be a man. Where's that conversation going? Well, one of the things that I got to do in that package was interview my son at length. And that was... How'd that go? It was great. He's great. (laughs) He's a great kid. And he's really articulate. But it was interesting because so many things are the same about being a boy and haven't changed at all from when I remember being his age. And many things were different. And I was encouraged by the things that were different and sort of perplexed by the things that are the same. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that are different is just sort of his peer group's understanding of sexuality. I can't imagine when I was in junior high school that there would have been out gay children uh, within a single-sex peer group. But I was asking him, well, what would happen if one of your friends came out? And he was like, "Eh, everybody would congratulate him and we'd move on. You know, it was like no big deal. (laughs) At the same time, they're all just 
boys and they beat each other up and they're mean to each other in the same ways that they ever were. And I don't know if that will ever change. That just seems to be what it is to be a a young boy. They're the next grown-ups. They're the ones who are going to be living in the world that we're shaping right now. What do you think that's going to be like? What do you see that's different for them? Well, I think their expectations are going to be radically different than ours were. If you're a 20-something, an early 20-something person now, and you saw this round of uh, men have to come to terms with their own behavior in the workplace and be punished for it, you're going to be a lot more careful and a lot more thoughtful. Mm. The women around you are going to be a lot more outspoken, one would hope. My greatest hope is that the many women I know who were scared off of various professions by predatory bosses, that sort of brain drain, I hope that that's what goes away mainly, that there won't be that sense of, I have to leave this profession because I can't deal with this man who's my boss. And just to wrap it up on a final note, you've heard from our listeners, you have heard from the women we've interviewed, and of course the wise words that we've, that have put those conversations in context with your own journalists from the cut. Where do we go next when it comes to women and the internet? We have Me Too, we have all sorts of ways to find, to express, to own it online. Give us one thing to look forward to. I'm looking forward to even more nuanced conversations about all of this. And I think that the best ones that have come out in the last year have been incredibly deep and incredibly nuanced and that there's a lot of space and there's a lot of room for that and we shouldn't shy away from it. I'm pumped. Awesome. (laughs) Stella Bugby, editor-in-chief, president of The Cut at New York Magazine. Thank you again so much. Thank you. It was fun. It was fun. And there are so many more nuanced conversations that need to be had. Not just making content, 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 content. So this is where I segue into some podcast news. For the next several weeks, we'll be putting out the best of Note to Self, our favorite episodes, the ones that made headlines and filled our inbox to the brim. I'm going to be working on some other projects, but I will be back in your note to self feed before you know it with some changes and some surprises. So watch this space. If you want to keep up with me meanwhile, and please do, you can find me in the usual places like Twitter and now Instagram at Manoush Z. M-A-N-O-U-S-H-Z and on my website, ManoushZ.com. Seriously, come find me. I love talking to you guys. Note to Self's No Filter series was produced by Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Cunane, and Justine Daum. Many thanks to New York Magazine's The Cut for coming to play podcast with us. Our technical director is Joe Plord, who is awesome and who got audio support from Keegan Zima, Ernie Indradat, and Anya Zuzik. Composer Hannes Brown also helped make this series sound so good. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and I'll see you soon. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. 
Yes. Yes, queen. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not quite Yes, it. queen. Okay, let's not, can we not do that anymore now? She'll get there.